Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Good evening, everybody. Um, Like Caleb said, um, my name is Anthony. What? Oh, dang it. Caleb, I'm sorry, man. I was, I was almost going to call myself Andrew O'Callaghan when I came up here. So, sorry, man. Like Joseph said, um, my name is Anthony Henderson. Uh, my wife and I um, are members here at HCC and part of the staff at Canvas Collective. And if you don't know me, we've never got to connect. Um, I'm the one that last week... When Luke got up, he put on blast and said, I'm not going to preach like Anthony preached for an hour that time. And man, if you thought that that sermon was long, just wait for tonight. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have a timer. Um, We're not going to go long tonight. I'm going to start the timer right now to keep myself from going long. But we do have a very dense passage. We have a passage tonight. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 16 through 21. This is a passage that is at once very, very dense and abstract in just five verses and also very simplistic and beautiful at the same time. Peter's going to hold those two things in tension for us. So last week we started a series in the book of 2 Peter. Luke Ham walked us through the first 15 verses. Um, And in those verses, Luke took great pains to point out That what Peter was doing in the final moments of his life is that he's writing all these things down so that believers who would receive this letter, us today, would be able to remember the specific promises of God so that they, and by extension we, would be free of sinful desire so that we could live in deep, deep joys of grace and peace. And so tonight... In verses 16 through 21, Peter is going to lay before us the reason why we can cling to those promises and this, this gospel hope. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to reassure us of one key truth, that Christ is coming back. And as he makes that appeal, he's going to take that and he's going to ground it in two different areas. So the two, the two ways Peter grounds this truth, one is in the testimony of the eyewitness of the apostles, And the second is the confirmed promise of a coming Messiah from Scripture. And so before we read this passage, I think this is important to keep in front of us. Before we start working through it, I'll admit that this is probably one of the most difficult human nature assaulting passages that I have ever studied and prepared um, to preach. I think it's so difficult for a 21st century mind, one that's been trained on a college campus, to not be skeptical of truth claims. So I have to admit that as I was putting this together, my mind and my heart fought back hard at the simplicity of what Peter's going to claim. Part of that simplicity is that Christ is going to come back for his people, and the two reasons we can trust that are because somebody else saw it and because the Bible says so. 
That's so simple and so beautiful. But as I've been trying to put this together, I've tried to, that wasn't enough. Eyewitness testimony and the Bible says so was not enough. So I've tried to somehow put my own apologetical, logical spin on this passage to somehow seek some kind of outside validation for what Peter means. I I thought to myself, surely Peter can't really just be saying that we, we trust the apostles who saw it and we trust the Bible. Is that really all he's saying? I'm like, I need more, right? I need more truth. That's not good enough. Eyewitness in scripture is not good enough. I need some other validation. But we're going to see tonight that Peter won't let us go there. Peter won't let us go beyond eyewitness testimony and because the Bible says so. So some of you probably heard that tonight and you're already scoffing. You're saying that's just circular reasoning. I should believe this because somebody else saw it and because the Bible says so. Others of us will try to rationalize why there has to be more to what Peter means. But Peter is firm. We can't go anywhere else. Christ's coming is trustworthy because others have seen a glimpse of his majesty and because the Bible says so. That's all the text will allow us to do tonight. That's what we have to abide by. If we go beyond that, we warp the text, and that's not expository preaching at all, and that's not letting the word speak for itself which led me to this question, convicted. Am I okay to trust the Bible? Is that enough? I think that as 21st people, 21st century people, especially college students, we, we kind of wince at passages like this. We don't want to go there. And somebody, we know what the follow-up's going to be. We tell them about something like this. And the response is going to be, you're saying you believe this just because a book tells you to believe this? You believe this because a bunch of people say that it's true? I don't know about you, but I start to tense up. I start to fight back and recoil, and I start to go along with that reason. Yeah, you know, maybe I, I do need to add something to this, but that's not true, and that's not where Scripture will go. Peter, we're going to see, is so okay tonight with taking God at his word at face value. If you read the rest of the New Testament, it seems like the believers were so okay with that. So tonight, as we unpack this difficult passage, answer this question for yourself. Is the word of God really so good and so trustworthy that I can stake my whole life on it? Or am I resisting believing it because I think that my intellect is so sound that I can outreason God himself? So it's just a challenge. So let's read the passage, pray, and then we'll unpack it. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your chance to gather tonight, God. I pray that your word tonight um, 
would, as Moses prays, fall like rain. That this would not be a good speech, that this wouldn't be witty or clever, Lord, but that people would just hear your word and not my voice in this tonight, God. That you would, by the Holy Spirit, open up our eyes to believe the truth of the gospel. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. So before we unpack it verse by verse, let's kind of do an overview, an airplane view of what Peter's logic is in these five verses. I think we can pull out four contentions that Peter's making. So the first contention Peter makes is that believers can know for certain that Christ is coming back. I'll say it again. Believers can know for certain that Christ is coming back. That's Peter's first contention. His second contention is that this certainty was confirmed by the apostles' eyewitness testimony to Christ's glory. So we can know for certain, and this certainty was confirmed by the apostles' eyewitness testimony to Christ's glory. His third contention is that this eyewitness testimony is only trustworthy because it is confirmed by Scripture. So we can know for certain Christ is coming back, We're certain because eyewitnesses have seen it. We trust the eyewitnesses because the scriptures attest to it. And contention number four, the scriptures are trustworthy because they came from God and not from man. So we can know for certain, certainty confirmed by the apostles, apostles' testimony confirmed by the scriptures. Scripture didn't come from man, it came from God. There's Peter's logic. So let's walk through these verses. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So let's get hung up on this word for for just a second. For could just stand in for because. So we know that everything that Luke preached to us last week in verses 1 through 15 are now getting grounded in what Peter is saying. So all that wonderful gospel truth that we heard from Luke, the good news that you cannot save yourself from your sin, that Christ has paid every last bit of debt that you owe under the wrath of God, and that now you get to walk in freedom. You get to believe the promises of God as you die to your sin and choose the joy that Christ purchased for you. Those truths that Peter is going to labor to remind believers of, All of that is grounded now in what Peter's about to say. So he reminds us of our gospel hope in his final moments, and he says, this is why you can trust it. He says, we, that's the apostles of Christ, so those who were proclaiming the experience based off their experience of it, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's aware that there's false teachers that's creeping into the church, just like there are today. These false teachers are going to tell them this whole Jesus thing, it's a myth. Don't buy it. They're going to distort the gospel, and they're trying to convince the believers, hey, Christ is not coming back. Don't waste your time. We know this because Peter references these false teachers later on in the book, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. References them again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter, faced with these false teachers saying, don't believe this myth about Jesus. He's not coming back. Don't waste your time. Peter doubles down. He says, no, the gospel is not some legend or some myth. It's as simple as that. And that's a truth claim that we're going to have to wrestle with. If you were here Sunday, um, HCC started a series in the book of John. And Adam, uh, pastor, noted that John's whole point in his writing was to point out that Christ is either a liar, he's a lunatic, he's a legend, or he's Lord. He can only be one of those four things, and we have to decide for ourselves. In that same book, John, in chapter 1, verse 14, another eyewitness of Jesus, he doubles down, affirms what Peter is also testifying to. The word became flesh. That's Christ put on human flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw him. We did life with him. We touched him. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Peter's emphatic. The account of Christ, everything we claim to build our lives on, his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his triumphant return in power, is not the result of the apostles looking at some story and then riffing off of it because it sounded good. The message of the gospel is not one, Peter says, that they found in any existing story, myth, or legend. And that has huge implications for our life. So I want you to think for just a second. If you're somebody that loves stories, I love movies and I love books. Um, Think about the story of Christ, how good the gospel really sounds. And then think about inside of you intrinsically why you love Stories. We're, we're drawn to them, right? We're, we're drawn to the to mythic heroes slaying some monster. We're drawn to the superhero giving his life for the world, for the chosen one fulfilling some prophecy and ending the darkness. We spend billions of dollars every year to watch these stories unfold. And these false teachers have taken those stories and they said, yeah, Christ is just another one of those. It's just a story. It's just something people will pay to see. But Peter says, no, you are not wasting your time. Christ is not a fairy tale. His return is not speculation. Peter says the gospel is the greatest story of all time, and it's true. And if that's true, then that means all other stories get seen through that filter, not the other way around. If the gospel is true, that's what's at stake. That's the weight of this. If the gospel is true, then it's not just another story. It is the story by which all other stories are inspired. Why do we sit in our beds as children? Why do we listen to bedtime stories? Why do we let our imaginations carry us off? Why do we long for more installments in the MCU, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings? We love them because we want them to be true. There's something intrinsic that we just love these stories and we long for those to be true. It's wired inside of us. And with the gospel, the good news is we don't have to make the error these false teachers made. Peter says the gospel is a story, but it's a true story. So because it's a true story, now every other story has to reflect that. or It's not true. It's no good. It has no worth. Every good story worth its salt is going to reflect the gospel in some way. That's why we love when Aslan in Narnia dies for the traitor. 
when Tony Stark gives himself up, spoiler, sorry, to reverse the curse of Thanos. He, he doesn't make it. The movie's been out for two years. If you haven't seen it, that's why we cheer for Aragorn to sit on the throne of Gondor once again. The false teachers pursued the wrong line of reasoning, looked at the myths, the legends, and they said the gospel's one of those. But the truth of the gospel is it flips it. And it says those myths and shadows are just a, rea- a shadow of the reality of Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. So a gospel implication for us. If the gospel's true, if it's the story by which we judge all other stories, then what are you putting in front of your eyes when you're watching Netflix, when you're consuming stories, when you're consuming media? Just evaluate it. Is there gospel depth to what we're watching, what we're reading? Does it have redemptive qualities? Does it point us to a savior? Or is it just trash that we don't need to give any of our time? What you view, filter it through the gospel. So Peter says, they made known this truth. They didn't follow cleverly devised myths. And they made known the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So they made known the power of Christ, the coming of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the power, coming, majesty. So what's important to note here is that at least 17 times in the New Testament, this word for coming, this Greek word, parousia, is speaking of Christ's return and not his first coming. So Peter says, we've made known to you the power and the second coming of Christ. And this is where it gets really, really dense. So he's speaking of the return of Christ. Peter connecting all three of these things, power, coming, majesty, indicate Christ is coming back and he's not just coming back, but he's coming back in power. So what we know is that a key component of the gospel, Peter says we made this known to you, is that a key part of the gospel was Christ's return in power. It's not just that he died, resurrected, and now he's gone and we'll never see him again. A key part of gospel doctrine that you need to believe is that Christ is going to return. Peter and the apostles told them this message, not based on legends, based on what they saw. So in Peter's mind, all the promises, all the gospel hope, hinge on this truth that Christ will return in power. This is essential gospel doctrine. The hope that we have in all those specific promises that were purchased through us through Christ's life and death, his resurrection, those promises that Luke told us we have to remember to be free from our own sin and chasing after joy. It's not based on any myth. It's not wishful thinking. It's rooted in a reality if they were eyewitnesses of it. Peter and the apostles and others have seen Christ's majesty. They saw the power, the majesty that he's coming back with, and they're doubling down and saying, this is true. So it's for you to decide, if it's true, what do I do with it? Peter goes on in verse 17 and 18. This is the, this is the abstract, the dense part. The specific moment Peter is connecting in his mind with the reality of Christ's return is this the transfiguration event. Verse 17 and 18, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy 
mountain. So let's get hung up on the four wind again. So Peter saying four wind, he's connecting now. He said, trust the gospel promises. Christ is coming back. We know that Christ is coming back because we saw this specific event that in our minds has made us think, yes, he's coming back. That event Peter's referring to is the transfiguration story. You see this talk of a voice being born to Jesus, a holy mountain. And that event is recounted in your Bibles. We don't have time to unpack those tonight, but if you get a chance, go read them. The, the transfiguration is recounted in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. So I'll just give us kind of a summary, but, but don't take my word for that. Go read them. Peter, James, and John, in the transfiguration story, get led up a mountain by Jesus where they see him transfigured. They see his appearance physically change to see a, a glimpse of his glory. They see him shining like the sun, bright white. His appearance of his face changes. So Peter, in his mind, is connecting that. He says, when we saw that, that told me he's coming back like that. That event preceded the cross. He hadn't died yet. And then Peter says, they hear God speaking over Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I and well pleased, which is a huge implication. So Peter's saying, we saw this eyewitness event. We saw God the Father giving honor and glory to Christ, putting Christ on equal footing with the Father, solidifying that Christ is the glorious God. So Peter's trying to thrust the weight of this truth before us. Believe the promises. Bank your whole life on the gospel because Christ is coming back. It's worth it. He says, we've seen it. We've seen a glimpse of the glory Christ will return with. We've seen a picture of it. And one day we'll see it in full. So application for us is that if what Peter's saying is true, they saw a glimpse of Christ's glory that has implications for your whole life. You can bank your entire life on the promises of God because he really is coming back for you. He's not going to leave you in the dust. Right? Some of you considering going to the missionary field, consider going to seminary, consider doing things that look radically crazy to the rest of the world. Why would you ever do something like that? If Christ isn't coming back, don't do it. What Peter says is Christ is coming back. So you can build your whole life on that truth, that everything you do is going to be worth it because one day you're going to see them. Our hope is certain because it's been seen. Peter's about to die. He's taking all these labors to just emphasize. He's seen just a glimpse of the power and glory Christ will return with. And our campus is so important. In our city, the reality of the return of Christ is paramount. We're out here, we're thinking about doing kids camp for the summer. You're thinking about having a, a coworker, a friend over for dinner. Is it really worth it? Like, is this all going to pay off in the end? Is, is there any? Peter would say, yes, yes. Don't fall into the trap for the minute that the gospel is just some inspiring story to get you to come to church and do a bunch of stuff and give a bunch of money. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a reality and Christ is going to return in power. Verse 19, Peter moves on. So we're into that third and fourth contention now. So that third contention, the eyewitness testimony is true because it was confirmed by scripture. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter's point here is he's saying that this glimpse they saw at the transfiguration where they were like, yes, Christ is coming back. We know it. We've seen it. He's saying it's fully confirmed. We know that that that's true because we read it in the Bible. This transfiguration, this return of Christ is a confirmation of the prophetic word. Peter would have only had the Old Testament and he would read that and he'd see the promises of this coming king and glory and he sees it in Christ. God promised throughout all Old Testament history from Genesis 3.15 on that a savior king would be coming for mankind in glory. And Peter is saying, yes, yes, we've seen the embodiment of those promises, all of them in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. Then he says, as we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, so the scriptures, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So he gives us a command here. He says, pay attention to the scriptures. Pay attention to this prophesied good news that Christ is coming back. Not just one time, but in the future. He's coming back again. He says, keep it in front of us like a lamp in the darkness. Think of how precious a lamp or a lantern is in the darkness. If you're somewhere and you're in the, you're the, the deep, deep, dark woods, pitch black night, you don't know how to get out, you need a lamp. You need light to pull you out. Lamp in the darkness. This, this present age we live in, I don't think anybody would contend with it. Seems to be on a daily basis filling with more and more darkness. The reality is sin is everywhere. It's in us. Right? The hundredth time, you're back in your mind. You're like, oh, I wrestled with that for the hundredth time tonight. I, why is there so much evil inside of me? You turn on the news. Outside, it feels like evil, corruption, seem to be winning, seem to be getting the final say. But Peter says, keep the scriptures, keep the hope, the certainty of Christ's return in front of you. And that will dispel the darkness. Don't forget that Christ is coming back. He says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until the day dawns. There's a fixed point in history where the darkness is obliterated. The day Christ comes back. He says, and the morning star rises in your hearts. So there's going to be a day where Christ comes back, and there's going to be a day, same day, when all the darkness inside and outside of you lift for good. Christ sets everything right. The morning star, so the light of Christ, fully realized in your heart. You're forever transformed. No more darkness, no more sin, no more depression. John Piper says this, Hang in front of you the lamp of the promise of Christ's glorious coming and let it guide you through the night away from every temptation to sin until the dawn. So an important gospel application for us here is to read and love the whole Bible, including the Old Testament. Don't skip it. When you read that Old Testament, 
Hold the promise of Christ's return in front of you. Read it expectantly, looking for Christ. Use it. Christ is coming back. I know it's true. As you kill your sin, you spread the gospel, knowing that the day is coming, and this isn't forever. So now we've got Peter's fourth contentions, three contentions. Believers can know for certain Christ is coming back. This certainty was confirmed by the apostles' eyewitness testimony to Christ's glory. Eyewitness testimony is trustworthy because it's confirmed by Scripture. Scriptures are trustworthy because they came from God, not men. Look at verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, knowing this, first of all, in other words, it's the utmost importance that we understand that nothing in Scripture, as opposed to these warped opinions of teachers, is a matter of subjectivity. In other words, God breathed the Scriptures, not men. False teachers take the Scriptures and make them say what they want them to say, what they feel they should say, or what they think they're saying to them. But they're not saying what God intended them to say. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we're under no delusion. We don't think that the Bible just dropped out of the sky, fully formed. Yes, the scriptures were penned by men. Peter says that. But he's also careful to emphasize it was not men's minds and wills producing this message. Men were just the vessels that the Holy Spirit carried the message through. So the application for us is that the scriptures have a message, right? If, if we're not the authors, it's not subjective, then God's the author and he gets to say what the message is. We have to make sense of the Bible somehow, right? It's a giant book. We're building our lives on it. Got to know the message. When, when I come to this book, what am I looking for? Am I looking for financial wisdom? Am I looking for how to feel good? What am I looking for? If you don't know what the Bible's about, you're going to miss everything. If God breathed it, he gets to say what it's about. We don't approach the scriptures, make them mean what we feel. You should reject any teaching that does that. Any sermon that starts with, you know, I just feel like God's telling me, throw it out. That's why here at Collective and HCC, we, we labor over the scriptures. We, there's a message here in our preaching. If you're in a community group, if you're in a discipleship group, we, there's a message. God's the author. We have to get at it. Jesus, Jesus placed such a huge emphasis on the scriptures throughout his whole teaching. In fact, it's not on the screen, but in Luke 16, 31, he says, listening to the scriptures is more convincing than seeing someone rise from the dead. So some of us tonight might be saying, you know, I'd believe in this whole Jesus thing if, I, if you just walked in here. Go read Luke 16. Jesus says, if you, if you won't believe the scriptures, you're not going to believe if somebody rises from the dead and stands in front of you. So that begs the question, what's the message of the scriptures that we need to take so much pain and labor to make sure we are seeing? John 5, 39, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, Christ. 
Luke 24, 27. This is Jesus post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. First Peter, Peter makes this point too. First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the gospel, the prophets, so the writers of the Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's the whole Testament about Christ's suffering and the glories that follow after that. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the big picture, what's the message of the scriptures? Is it be a good person? Is it follow a bunch of rules? It's not. It's Christ. The scriptures are about the gospel, the sinless life of Christ, his death in your place, his resurrection, his victory over death, and his future reign as king. So when you read them, you are looking for Christ. Not, what can I see here to, to help me make $1,000 this week? That's weird. I meant to say a million dollars. What can help me make a million dollars this week? Right? You're, you're looking at them for Christ, not self-help. Not what sounds good to your human ears. If they're breathed by the Holy Spirit and authored by God, then you need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to them. So when you're reading, you're praying for the Spirit to reveal Christ to you in the Scriptures. That's the message. It might not sound very profound. That's the message. It's the most profound truth in all of reality is that all of Scripture is about Christ, what he would do on the cross, his resurrection, when he comes back as king forever. The New Testament continues that story, right? We'll see in a couple weeks why we can trust the New Testament, also as Scripture. All of the Scripture story tells the Christ on full display. If you were at CrossCon, not this year, but a couple years ago, J.D. Greer um, spent some time kind of walking through this truth and and talking about how we can see Christ in every single uh, book of the Bible and I'm at 33 minutes, and I don't want to be the long guy forever. So Billy Graham has a shortened version of that, so I want to share that with you. So Billy Graham says this about the whole Bible. In Genesis, he, when I say he, I mean Christ. Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Christ is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Christ is the atoning sacrifice. In Numbers, Christ is the smitten rock. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet. In Joshua, Christ is the captain of the Lord's hosts. In Judges, Christ is the deliverer. In Ruth, Christ is the heavenly kinsman. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Christ is the promised king in Nehemiah. He is the rest- or in Nehemiah, Christ is the restorer of the nation. In Esther, Christ is the advocate. In Job, Christ is my redeemer. 
In Psalms, Christ is my song. In Proverbs, Christ is wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Christ is my goal. In Song of Solomon, Christ is my satisfier. In the prophets, Christ is the coming Prince of Peace. In the Gospels, Christ is God come to redeem. In Acts, Christ is alive in the church. In the epistles, Christ is at the Father's right hand. In Revelation, Christ is the mighty conqueror. The message of all of Scripture is Christ. Uh, I'm an English teacher currently at a, at a high school. And one of the modern ideas that has poisoned everything and can poison us if we're not on guard with this truth, the scriptures are about Christ. Uh, There's an idea that if you sat through any English class on Marshall's campus or any secular campus, you've probably heard it. It's this idea of the death of the reader, that the text that I'm reading has really no meaning, right? That, That I bring to it what it's supposed to mean, that the text is only important because I say so, that it my experiences, my feelings, my background kind of get to determine what it means. But Peter doesn't go there. Peter says, no, there's an objective meaning to scripture. Christ, labor to see that meaning. So study every word, read every line, compare scripture with scripture. So in conclusion, I hope that you've seen the hope of Christ's return tonight. It was testified to by witnesses, it was promised in the scriptures. So for us, when we leave here, we, we can build our hope on that return. Hang that before you, always, like some lamp shining in the darkness until the day that he comes back and it's fully realized. I cannot wait for that day. I hope that you can't wait for that day either. I hope there's a longing in your heart for the day when Christ really does come back. All the glory All the power, all the right, all the wrongs get flipped upside down. We get delivered from this darkness to be with him forever. And if you're an unbeliever, that should terrify you. Because while as believers, we're we're expecting hope, right? Christ comes back. It's going to be the best day of our entire lives. If you're an unbeliever, the best day of your entire life is, is probably this week. That's it. That's as good as it gets. And then all there is when Christ comes back for your sin is wrath and hell. But if you're in Christ, there is no wrath and hell for you anymore because he took it all. So that when he comes back, he doesn't see your sin anymore. Sees you, sees his own righteousness. You get to be with him forever. So I love uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I told you guys I like stories uh, by C.S. Lewis. It does such a good job of creating this picture of anticipation. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you can see how the Narnians, as the characters interact with them, are so excited by the prospect that Aslan the Lion is going to come back. Aslan, if you're not familiar, that was kind of Lewis's allegorical character for Christ. The Narnians are so excited. Aslan's going to come back. He's going to return. His return is going to signal the end of winter, the end of darkness reigning, of evil having the last say. So there's a passage from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, I'd like to share with you. Who is Aslan? Asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. 
It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to right. As it says in the old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. In another story, the silver chair, the characters get delivered from this, this evil dark dungeon, this place called Underland, and Aslan appears and they see him. And Lewis says, I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself, so bright and real and strong that everything else began at once to look pale and shadowy compared with him. Look at Christ and the glory that he's going to come back with. Everything else, your sin, the darkness in the world, it's smaller and smaller and smaller in light of that day. So as the band comes back up, I want to close um, by reading to you the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, this is our final reminder from the Bible of Christ's return. This is, this is the final words that we are left with. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, Christ saying to John, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. 
and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight I just pray that we would be captivated by your glory, God, by the gospel, that we would build our whole life around the fact that you're coming back, God, that you know each of our situations in this room, you know the the darkness that we're struggling with, and I just pray that we would maybe for the first time believe the good news that you've died for us, you've done everything, and that you're coming back for us. So, Lord Jesus, just pray that right now we would worship and we would fellowship together in light of all that. It's in your name.